Here's one thing I hear time and time again from CEOs. I don't have enough of the right skills, but I have too many employees. You need to solve that problem through strategically looking at your workforce differently. Workforce transformation, a future of work where individuals are owners of their own career. Companies buying work outcomes, not employees, on the open market. Welcome to State of Independence, the podcast about how independent work has completely transformed the U.S. economy and how you can take advantage of it. I'm your host, Asya Haq, Vice President of Talent Marketing at MBO Partners, and today we will talk with Miles Everson, Chief Executive Officer of MBO. We will talk about his experiences as a global consultant prior to becoming CEO at MBO and what he sees as the imperatives for CEOs designing the workforce of the future. Hear about the four key forces of a modern business model and the role of platforms in our collective future of work. Well, Miles, this is fun. It had been such a pleasure working with you as I've returned to MBO Partners and We're kind of at a momentous anniversary, I would say, for how we think about independent work, because we are at the 10-year mark of being the company that has studied the growth, development, and changes in the independent workforce and what it means for the workforce more broadly. But before we go to that topic, when you think about a 10-year horizon in anyone's life, I think about my own, so much changes, right? And it's that journey or that red thread that leads you to where each of us is in the present. So I would like to take us back to where were you 10 years ago today and how did that journey lead you to the role you have today as the CEO of MBO Partners? Yeah, great question. So in 2010, at that time I was leading the financial services advisory practice for uh, one of the largest and leading consulting firms. And so we were right in the midst of dealing with the great financial crisis, the GFC. (laughs) And so I was spending my time helping big financial institutions work through the challenges that they had. And frankly, what's interesting to Asia is by the time we got to that point, most of the banks had been stabilized and it had turned to paying attention to what needs to be done for the treatment of consumers or individuals, the borrowers in many cases, because a lot of the crisis was driven by mortgage-related matters. And so we were working on mortgage remediation matters that were intended for the benefit of the mortgage holders. In your career, and I've heard you talk about this in your role at MBO, have a very thoughtful way about thinking about sectors and industries. And I've particularly heard you talk about the financial sector and the idea that we need to engineer a better connection between the two sides of the market. So as you have a thesis on talent management, you've talked about the financial sector and I think a concept of liquid markets. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I definitely have a view on this. And, you know, the reason the financial markets thrive, when they thrive and work so well, it's when obviously there is a liquid market. When you bring liquidity to a market, all boats rise with that rising liquidity. So because the reason is liquidity is indicative of less friction, more buyers, more sellers. And so you've got this really fluid kind of silk-like market that's occurring. And that's happened in financial transactions, and many of them, right, like in traded exchanges I'm referring to. 
And so when I look at what we're doing with human capital today and what companies are doing or should you know need to be doing is when you rely only on your full-time workforce, you by definition have a finite set of assets that you're relying on. The size of your market is the size of your full-time employee base. When you embrace a broader set of assets, i.e. non-employee human capital or cognitive capability, you create a broader market. And so the question is, how can you as an enterprise be more effective at being appealing to a broader number of people that can contribute to the growth of your company? The purpose of the company, the financial growth of the company, the brand of the company, is it a good place to work kind of mindsets? And so creating these dense markets where there's liquidity, where individuals and companies can work together easily without saying that it has to be a long-term permanent relationship is so important if you want to compete and win in the 21st century. I 100% agree with that. And both of us have had long careers in what we would think of as the future of workspace. And one of the parts of the State of Independence Report that I've always found exciting and interesting, and I know others that are thinkers and leaders feel the same, is the part where we start to predict what the future might look like and what are the key themes that are important. And I'm going to speak to the five forces that are mentioned at the end of the report. And I know you have a very unique perspective on these and a thesis about them, and I would love to hear you talk about it. But first, I'll share what those forces are for the benefit of our listeners who haven't yet looked at the report at mbopartners.com slash state of independence. The first is the role of technology. The second is a concept for companies of flexibility and agility. The third is this idea that workers will in greater numbers seek autonomy, flexibility, and control. The fourth is the idea of the need for supplemental income becoming a core part of a, let's say, a portfolio career for many workers. And the fifth, and I think one of the ones I find to be the most interesting, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, is the fact that it has now become easier cheaper and less risky to go solo because of the support infrastructure that now exists for independent work. So tell us more about your thesis, focusing on speaking to the C-suite leader, the, the critical thinker who is trying to design the workforce of the future. Yeah, so a, a few things, and I'll frame them so that, you know, the first finding in the survey in the report was around technology can, continues to enable and empower independent workers which is true. I think you know one of the mega trends that I've been tracking for some time is obvious on the surface, which is the rate of change is continuing to accelerate. However, the significance of the rate of change accelerating is that innovations are coming out at a faster rate. And innovations on their own can have great impact, but it's when you have multiple innovations that converge where you have societal impact. And so if you think about what happened in 1959, AI is invented. And after multiple runs at trying to scale it, it just wouldn't scale. It finally started to scale in the 90s after there had been technology innovations to house, move, maintain, surface data. And that was the advent of electronic trading. It took another 10 to 15 years before it became consumerized in the form of smartphones. And that was only possible because you had additional innovations, which is nanotechnology, mobile technology, and just this, putting all that together as a smartphone. And now we can't get AI out of our life, okay? And so if you think about it, 
1959 to basically 2010 is 50 years. It's a half a century. On the flip side, the genome gets decoded in 2000. And by 2019, less than 20 years later, it went from 100 million to decode the first genome to less than $1,000 for each of us to have our genome decoded. Much, much faster. And the reason is because of the convergence of technologies. And so recognizing that there will be convergences of technology is so critical for a business leader because it's easy to think about one singular thing. So today you hear a lot of people talk about 5G. 5G is going to be impactful because of how it interacts with other innovation. Okay? And the same thing is happening in human capital. Why is the independent worker a more important component to the total workforce strategy? Because it's easier now to have more independent workers, which I can expand on. But on the first one with technology, it's definitely made it possible because of the convergence of technologies to be able to proceed with the use of more independence. Fascinating. And I know you are somebody who has had a series of these conversations within the workforce space with organizations that are working on and actively engaging in redesign. And we're definitely going to touch on that topic a little bit further in our conversation. But to ground our listeners in the what of what that change is, I want to point out a statistic that in the future of work, more than 50% of Americans will experience independence, at least as a part of their career. And one of the key problems, really the mega problem, to solve in that area is how to match skills to work in a scalable way. You have thought about this. You have experimented with this in various roles in your career, not just your most recent role as a leader at MBO, but also in other parts of your business career as a consultant, as a business leader operating on a global scale. Talk about how a business leader tackles this problem and what it means to figure out and succeed? Great question. So the first thing that the way I think about it is I'm going to go right at the heart of the way business operating models are set up or traditionally business models were set up in terms of the way they organize their human capital through org charts, which is basically a role and then a mandate for that role. So it's focused on the activities that somebody's supposed to execute, as opposed to what we're seeing now is a pivot to a greater influence of project-based or outcome-based operating models. So how can I put my strategic intent into a series of sprints or projects, initiatives, and then I, I form my human capital component around the outcome I'm trying to drive, yeah. and that will change. It's a rate of change issue. That changes faster and faster because the hot skills or just the skills I need and pointed at a particular outcome or strategic intent cycles through at a faster rate of time than when it did 30, 40 years ago. And so organizing to address the issue of skills to deliver project-based value creation is important. So here's an interesting, couple interesting statistics, right? If you're under the age of 45 in the United States, you will change jobs every 4.1 years. Jobs as in companies, right? And if you are under 35, you will change jobs, companies, every 18 months. So the idea that I establish a permanency around an organizational role-based model, and that's what's going to win the day in the long run, that's just, that's legacy thinking. 
you have to be thinking about this in the context of I'm going to have to continually set up sprints of initiatives and projects with outcomes I can measure quickly so I can pivot faster and be more agile. And it is impossible to do that with a captive workforce. Because here's one thing I hear time and time again from CEOs. I don't have enough of the right skills, but I have too many employees. You need to solve that problem through strategically looking at your workforce differently. I have no doubt that's true. You know, going back to very early in my own career, the genesis of my first startup as a founder was around this exact idea, Alumrise, which was the idea that companies couldn't handle strategic exit through traditional means, and they needed new ways of gathering talent into on-demand pools based on their own decisions about where they wanted to work, how much they wanted to charge, what they felt the value was of their work outcome. And that was just the beginning of a conversation. I'm dating myself if I mention how long ago that was, but obviously much has happened since then. And I think one of the most interesting developments and one I know you have spent a, t- spent a lot of time thinking about is the meteoric rise in online marketplaces as a part of that puzzle, not the entire solution because we know that the rise doesn't necessarily mean the success, but I was wowed by the statistic inside the State of Independence report on the comparison and the use of online markets from 2011 to 2020. It went from 3% in 2011, and I was there at the start of the report, to 27% today, making it a very significant part when we think about from a venture capital standpoint, from a corporate thinker standpoint, and even from an individual talent standpoint, how work will be acquired and done in the future, very differently from the past. So talk a little bit about your thesis and your thoughts there. So no question that commonly referred to as platform-based business, I could say it's network-based business, it's marketplace-enabled businesses, but it's where there is the use of innovation and technology to reduce the friction of getting an outcome. Whether that has to do with rideshare, lodging, human capital, platform-enabled businesses that create a marketplace, create these dense liquid markets that we just talked about. And when they can do that in conjunction with reducing the friction associated with getting the outcome, that's what causes them to disrupt legacy ways of thinking. And that's what's happening in human capital is, interestingly enough, the fastest growing segment of platforms for human capital is in the high-end independent professional. That's on a global basis. It's the rise of the platform is most pronounced in the highest income earning professionals. You lead me to something that I had noted down as one of the areas I really wanted to dig in with you. And it's specifically because you do have maybe one of the most unique backgrounds to speak to this. You yourself have been recognized as one of the top 25 consultants in the world previously in your career. You've held some very important roles within the professional services industry. And you're somebody who has even been profiled in Harvard Business Review with a case around how you look at problem solving. I put you in the category of this 7.7 million high-skill independent white-collar professionals that are a very bright spot within the report when you think about happiness, security, satisfaction, growth, 
teaming, all these, all these things that have to do with this is where we want the workforce to go. Speak about this group and why you believe that solving their problems is important for both companies and for the workforce as a whole. Yeah, um, thanks. And, you know, I, I'll just humbly say that, you know, the uh, consultant and the Harvard stuff has a lot more to do with the teams that I was able to build around me um, to make all that stuff happen, right? Because collectively, the, the team did great things. When you get more specific to this 7.7 million, you know, high-end, independent professional, I think there's a few things to take into consideration. The first is that from a company perspective, if you truly want access to the best talent, and we'll just pause for a second, because I'm going to say almost every CEO says her or his most valuable asset is their people. But by definition, if you mean people as in just your employees, your full-time employees, you are missing the ability to actually attract all of the best people. And there's a proof point here. Where's the greatest innovation or much of the greatest innovation coming from technology? It's through open source technology. It is not a protectionist mentality. Whereas for many companies though, they take a protectionist mentality when it comes to their most valuable asset, which is their people. You need to open up, same thing, but this is why there's the rise of crowdsourcing and open innovation platforms, is you need flow. Knowledge flows is the way to drive the 7.7 million people you're talking for, they're curious, they're smart, they have a purpose, they want to make a change. They don't want to just kind of be put in a box. So these are the folks that have said, you know what, I'm going to go do this on my own. I'm going to choose the companies I get to work for. Their financial acumen is extremely high because they have to worry for themselves. They're not relying on an employer to just carry the way for them. Injecting your human capital cognitive know-how with people that think as owners, entrepreneurs, they're curious, they're innovative, and they, you know, they need to make sure that they do an outstanding job because they won't get the next project if they don't. That's an imperative for companies to lock onto. It's not just a transaction to fill a short-term need. This has to be part of the strategy of the company. And by the way, the highest valued companies on the planet from a market cap perspective, they leverage fractionalization or asset light. They do it in their tech stack, they do it in their tech building, and they do it in their human capital. I 100% agree. And I think that there's a concept or a set of concepts that you have built some equity around and has been something that you've spoken about repeatedly uh, in private forums and publicly, which is your concept of the modern business model and the four forces that you believe drive that. And I think this is a perfect point for us to link what we know in the broader study to that source of content that already existed and is independent. And, and maybe you could help us to connect the dots there. Yeah, so the, the four forces, I've touched on two of the four so far, right? So which is the rate of change is accelerating. Everybody knows that, but the significance of it is that innovations are accelerating and therefore innovations are converging at a faster rate. So that's kind of point number one, acceleration of change. Point number two force is that progress is deflationary. It has been for some time when innovation outstrips the cost of capital and you add it to the innovation that's being done has societal impact. It has a deflationary effect. 
That's why we carry billion dollar computers in our pockets for $700 and why I can get my genome decoded for $1,000 today. Many other examples here, but those are concrete proof points. And then the, the third force that is at work is knowledge flows, which I, I touched on, right? If you are not capitalizing on knowledge flows to inform your business, you're missing the boat. Some people think knowledge flows is, well, I want to I want to stream the data and I figure out how I make money off the data stream. Certainly you can do that. But what I'm talking about here is why would you limit the human and cognitive idea generation and execution capability to a finite set of people when you have the opportunity today, because of the first two points, to be able to access a much, much larger workforce. And then the fourth one is the fractionalization of everything. And the fractionalization of everything has been going on for hundreds of years, but it's accelerating like everything else. So, you know, in the 1600s, the East Dutch Indies shipping company decided to start fractionalizing the financing of a shipping journey because one investor would put up, would have had 100% of their investment at risk by getting 10 of them together and each taking one tenth of 10 shipments, they de-risk themselves. That was the advent effectively of the, what we call today is stock exchanges, where I can own a fractional piece of a company. What I find amazing in, in the United States is if you're in a room of a thousand people and you say, how many people own your homes? 80% of the hands go up. And then you say, well, let me redefine what I mean by own. How many of you actually have the title or the deed to your home and you don't have a mortgage on it? Well, you'll have less than 25% of the people with their hands up. What's amazing is they don't own their own home, but they own a piece of somebody else's home if they're invested in a fixed income fund called a mortgage-backed security. So I don't own my home, but I own a piece of yours. And that's happening. We talked about rideshare. We talked about lodging. Like you, you can... You can do it. Every asset now is being fractionalized through the use of platforms. And so what we're doing at MBO is we're fractionalizing for the for the company. We're fractionalizing the workforce. And for the individual, we're fractionalizing the workday and the human career. Fascinating. As somebody who spent a lot of time personally in the VC industry, I've had two startups I tend to look at external content, and I know you're somebody who does the same. You know, you look beyond one source of data to arrive at your conclusion, which is a smart way to look at the world. And I want to point to two pieces of content that I have found interesting, and, and we can talk about more about them if you haven't already come across them. One is the work by Andreessen Horowitz on the concept of deep jobs, which I think is really fascinating in the sector, and it, it's something that's worthy of digging into because it speaks to that earlier point I made about cheaper, easier, and it and it hits the point you just hit, which is the de-risking in a really big way because it's become so easy on the talent or supply side to hop up an independent career, even as a side hustle, even if it's not as a main career. And it's become easier for companies to engage with this workforce in a de-risked way because of work that is going on in this middle part, which is the deep jobs piece, like the little uh, slivers of things that are being big problems that are being solved in a way that makes this workforce happen. Talk about your thoughts there and what you've taken away from that thinking. Yeah. So I think of it this way. When you are a platform business, which is what we are at, at MBO, the question is, where are there points of friction between the producer, which is the talent, and the buyer, which is enterprises? 
where are those points of friction? And so going through very granularly and saying, what makes it difficult for a solo individual or a small consulting company to work for a big enterprise? And it starts with many enterprises, rightfully, have many, many gating criteria, and they just can't let anybody come in and operate. So you got to take all the friction out of being eligible to work for the organization. So I think of that as the individual needs to become enterprise grade ready. Well, we help them do all that. There's other platforms out there that they, they have a belief that, well, if I just match person A with company B, voila, everything will be great. That's not how it works. You got to knock all the other friction points down. And then you get to, well, I am an individual. What, what does it mean to be enterprise grade ready? You got to have an entity, you got to have insurance, you've got to have background checks, all the stuff that you need to have done to be eligible to do work together. And then once you're eligible to do work, it's only then that you should start to say, well, do I have the skills and have I created the impact as an individual for others that the enterprise is desirous of? Then you can start to do your matching. Because now I know I'm matching an enterprise-grade ready person. I'm not just matching a random resume. And then after you've matched, then you actually have to work together. you got to be able to onboard in the company. You have to be able to put in your milestones. You need to put in your time. You need to, people need to get paid. Funds flows, all, that, all of that. And that's what a platform like MBO does, is it knocks down all those little individual points of friction so that it makes it smooth for the enterprise and the individual to work together. That's why the deep, complex job platforms are so important to an enterprise being able to capitalize on this independent workforce we've been talking about. And I'm going to point to something that the um, Andreessen Horowitz uh, content speaks to. I'm going to kind of quote something that I thought was really interesting. They say, we previously espoused the need to transition from traditional job platforms like an Indeed or LinkedIn to quote-unquote vertical job platforms that address specific needs of an industry or a candidate. And so talk about that, that part of the puzzle, which is sort of specialization as a part of how you succeed. And, and I think you've thought about that specialization in a couple of ways. You mentioned the high-end talent, and then talk a little bit about how industry might play in here. This ties back to density, right? So in order to get density, you need to get specific on multiple attributes, on certain types of skills and capability, the industry know-how, okay. oftentimes geography will matter. So if I have density, but I, I don't have the elimination of friction or the reduction of friction, I don't get liquidity. The end game is liquidity. So first I have to have density of supply and density of demand. And then you have to go after creating the liquidity which is you take out the friction. Density without friction reduction doesn't result in liquidity because it's too hard to trade. It's too hard to, to do work together. And so we very much see those two as together. So you know, as you know, since I came to MBO, we're not just all things to all people when it comes to an independent and an enterprise. We're focusing on where the where is there needed density by industry and get really good at helping those industries get access to the skills and talent that they need. Perfect. I'm going to switch gears a little bit to look at another external source that I've engaged with. LinkedIn recently announced their big ideas for 2021, and this is for one of their most um, engaging pieces of content. They'll bring in outside thinkers and uh, write a thesis about different topics. And one of the topics 
points to independent work. It says, a key idea, and I'm quoting is, the pandemic will unleash a new wave of entrepreneurs. And they list a key supporting fact that is from Jeanette Mulvey, who is a LinkedIn top voice, and an, she is part of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce working in the area of small business. And they talk about the number of new business applications and how that has skyrocketed, growing nearly 40% year over year as of mid-November, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. The pandemic will unleash a new wave of entrepreneurs. Talk about your perspective on this topic as the CEO of a company focused on independent work. Yeah, so I think an even more recent data point, Asia, is the number of business applications for tax EIN numbers in the third quarter. So in the third quarter of 20, it was up over 80% from the third quarter of 19, and it was the highest number of quarterly applications in the last 30 years. And so that's just a proof point. Solo entrepreneurs are getting their own tax ID. So here's, here's my take on this situation. I believe that COVID-19 has accelerated everybody's willingness, ability, and I'm going to say comfortableness with working remotely. One thing I know for certain is the way we worked before COVID is different than the way we're working today and the way we're going to work post-COVID. It's not going to be the same as it was before COVID. So I believe that there is correlation between remote work and the willingness to use independence as a part of your workforce. I'm not saying there's causation but I do believe there's correlation. And it's, it's very similar to whenever you inject change into large companies and organizations, people rightfully say, well, what does it mean to me? What do I have to do differently? Well, this change to remote work was forced upon most because they weren't used to it. It's very similar to when offshoring was a, was a hot topic. Like, well, you, you, you can offshore, you know, Asia's work, but not mine. <laughs> um, or you can, you know, you can automate some, you know, this other department, but not my department. And so people, people are also beginning to get more used to change. I'm not saying it's easy. I would actually argue that the single largest choke point to change in companies is the changing of the people, not the changing of the technology or the strategy. <laughs> and so I believe that COVID has caused people to be more willing with remote work and with others working remotely. Uh, and so I, I, I think that it's gonna be a very strong signal. And then you combine that with the point that, you know, I reinforced that, that you had made around the number of new business applications. And people are choosing to work as independents. You know, if, if you go back 10 years and you say, well, I'm an independent contractor, people would say, well, really, what did you do before you lost your job? That's no longer the case. Now it's more like, well, how do you how do you do that? How do you how do you get that to work? That's great. Like I wish I could do that. It's a very different conversation. And that's why we're seeing the surge. Absolutely. So in the State of Independence report, as we start to shift the conversation toward the individual and away from the enterprise, which is a topic I thought would be a nice way to close our conversation. The night before the State of Independence report was launched, I was scrolling my LinkedIn feed and a very, very interesting piece of content popped up from Bessemer Venture Partners, which almost exactly mirrored some of the themes that were in the State of Independence report. 
creating this concept of democratizing the CEO, reinventing the new American dream, and essentially creating a roadmap that says there's major forces that are creating headwinds for aspiring micro and small business owners, and that there are six platform laws that Bessemer, which is really one of the experts in this field, believes will create a massive surge in solo and micro entrepreneurship. And I'll read the laws out only because I think they're helpful to ground those that haven't looked at the content already. It talks about expansion. Don't worry about who's entering and exiting this group. Grow your platforms. Do what's needed to scale with your customer. Look at their needs and do what's needed. Invest. Find a way to help people shift their side hustle to their main hustle because they all want to do that. <laughs> They're just trying to figure it out, right? How do I get there? Narrow the funnel in terms of what you focus on, arm the rebels, and help founders find market fit. And I, as a, as a sort of a startup person, I just love the way that they've encapsulated this. We know from State of Independence that independents are happier, healthier, financially secure, and committed to staying the path. For somebody who has helped to guide this journey, what is your message for the solo entrepreneur? What can you tell them about what it takes to be successful in this field as you and others are figuring out the friction points? Let's talk to the individual for a moment and what you can say to them. So my advice to any individual that's looking to set out is first, they should be doing something that they have you know, their passion for and they're committed to. And, and I use both passion and commitment intentionally because a lot of times you hear, you know, you should work on what you have passion for. But I've just observed at times that people have a passion for something, but they're not willing to put the work in. And so you commitment is equally important in terms of understanding, you know, what is it going to take to be successful to go work on your passion every day? You don't need all the answers on day one, right? But but you do, you do need to be able to have a sense of reality. And it takes most people that are successful in delivering their passion. One, made the choice to go pursue their passion, but two, have worked very hard at it. Occasionally, you'll find the lucky person, but that's, a, that's an exception. And so you got to be prepared to put in the work. And, you know, the ability to connect today is so easy in terms of connecting with people. So it's the commitment. And then after that, you know, I would say most people are better served when they're thinking of going out to be an entrepreneur, when they've actually talked to some of the customers or their potential customers and ask them what they think, what's important, et cetera. So the more people you draw into advising you on whether you should make the change or not, the more people that will have an implicit ownership in your decision. So you should always say, when I decide to go do my own thing, who are going to be my first hand half a dozen customers? And the best way to secure that first half dozen customers is to have them be a part of you making the decision. Because they will, if they will feel a sense of commitment, ownership of the decision that you made. And so that's the best way to get started. And I, I have to kind of put an explanation point on two philosophical things from my perspective. And it's very simple words. Start, finish. So many people will plan and plan and plan and will not actually act. So start, 
send the email, register the entity, like just do something. And, and then don't try to do so many things at the same time that you can't finish any of them. I get up every day and I literally, in my mind, I say, what am I going to finish today? Not just what am I going to think about, not just what I'm going to start, but start and finish are the two things that can really cause somebody to go out and build a real business as a solo entrepreneur. That's excellent advice. And given my career, and I think it's typical of a lot of similarly uh, profiled individuals, I've, I've moved through a revolving door of traditional work within the consumer packaged goods industry, fantastic grounding that led me to my first company, but also at the time that I was launching my first company, my first boss at PepsiCo actually offered me a consulting gig on the side. And hello, Mark, if you're listening to this uh, podcast, and hopefully you are, thank you, because that gave me an incredible insight into really what you're saying, which is when somebody within your career network offers you that type of opportunity, recognize it and take advantage of it. And it's a de-risking mechanism for somebody who is going out and doing something new to have more than one source of income. And that's absolutely why I began down that road. But I grew to love the idea of being an independent consultant with my own practice. And at various points, that's been a lever that I've pulled, although not recently, but it's been a big part of my career. And I really think your advice is spot on. We talk about it within our MBO Advantage Network to people that come to us with the same question you pointed out, which is, how do I do this? How do I get started? Like, I I kind of know I have the interest, but these steps intimidate me. And by making it easier for people to not worry about their business card and their logo and their website and, and how to incorporate their entity and which type of entity, which often can be a lot of fun but it actually has no financial impact at all if you get stuck <laughs> you know, in those five steps. You're not going to get income. You're not going to get work. And therefore, you'll move back into a traditional role. The more we can accelerate and help that become easier, the better we can get people into those meaningful conversations that will lead to you know, phenomenal outcomes for both sides. Because these are, by and large, extremely smart, extremely talented and committed individuals. So that's certainly a passion for me, working so closely with the group that is inside MBO Advantage that are those high growth consultants. So very, very good thoughts there. As a closing, Miles, this has been a super rich and, and interesting conversation. What are your words for somebody who, in this time of COVID, has either been sitting at the helm of a company, a Fortune 500 enterprise, or has suddenly inherited the, you know, the reins of the company in a time of extreme flux, how do you counsel them and what would you say to them to prepare for the future and to think about their human capital in the future? What, what are those key pieces of advice that you could leave us with? The first point I would make is that I am a big, big believer in applying the golden rule. So you treat people the way you would want to be treated. And so you have to you have to come at it from that perspective, kind of first and foremost. But that is not mutually exclusive from saying, I need to have a total workforce and a people strategy that will allow me to maximize the potential of my company, including maximizing the potential of all the people who are in it and all of the people who can influence it. And so if you've not viewed the world of independent professionals as a 
strategic asset that you can deploy to help your own company maximize its potential, I think you've made a mistake. So I'm really, you know, for the senior executive is saying, don't just relegate this to a middle management kind of, let's go see if we can get a few people to help us out. But how are, how are we maximizing the use of non-employee talent, know-how, passion to help drive the future of our company? Because the ones that do that are going to win. And I say that because we're already seeing that in the area of technology. Those that are using a much more open source are winning. And so it's not unique because you, you know there's also a saying that every company is a technology company, and this is not limited to people that know how to do technology. It's every human asset class. You need to be thinking about how you're leveraging a much, much larger workforce than just a captive employee base. Well, that is a great way to end our conversation. This was fascinating. And thank you, Miles, for um, sharing your perspective based on so many years of wisdom across so many different business environments. I know people are going to love listening to this podcast. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Asya. That was Miles Everson, Chief Executive Officer of MBO Partners, a champion of both independent workers and the businesses that partner with them. For more of MBO's insights on the future of work and how to make the most of the independent economy today, visit mbopartners.com or find another episode of State of Independence wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening.